Thank you for the joy it is to be with your people. And Father, we ask now that as we meet, uh, you would be with us. We pray that you would um, enable us to lift our hearts to you, to worship you as we ought, and to learn from those who have gone before us. We ask your blessing on this time now in Jesus' name. Our first hymn this evening will be These Things I Have Spoken Unto You. Thank you. 
And see, that song was an ancient <clears throat> Irish hymn, so I, I guess the Gettys must have written it. <laughs> uh, we are the the uh, ladies are starting a a psalm study, and that's going to be a rich study. They're on Psalm one this evening, and men, if if you want to go ahead and, and, and read their book, you can read Psalm one, and that's okay. <laughs> Uh, the men are, we've just also finished a series, and so we're starting a new series uh, studying, this will be our text, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Again, as I mentioned this morning, this is a uh, made a reader friendly. So it's kind of updated English, and it's shorter, and it's bigger print, and um, so your, your lips won't get tired as you're reading men. Um, so this will be our text. Just to put in perspective, um, this is the, this is the Banner of Truth edition. Or, and uh, if you were to look, you may not may not see from your side, but the the text is smaller. The book is thicker. Um, so th there is definitely a con uh, this has definitely been condensed. I think about half. Uh, but but that's okay. We're going to get good value out of it in, in our opportunity to study. And so, Jeremiah Burroughs. I prepared Thomas Watson. No, no. Um, aside from the fact that maybe we've mentioned this, um, do you know anything about Jeremiah Burroughs? No. Uh, and I confess I don't. And interestingly... Um, I didn't. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Jeremiah Burroughs is there's only one biography that I can really find about him, and that was that's very recent. In other words, he just kind of gets skipped over in the biographies. I mean, uh, I've got a number of volumes that are studies on the Puritans, and he gets six or seven pages or so in there, but but a full biography is unfortunately. Um, missing, and I'm glad to say it's you know that that need has been met. There's a, a good biography of him out there, and he's an important person. And the reason I wanted to talk about Jeremiah Burroughs, especially with the men beginning to read, whenever we do a book study, I always like to spend some time. You know, when we're first studying, we just started John, for example, some time back. I always begin with an introduction to John, and I always like to know who's the author, what's going on in his lifetime, um, and so with. Jeremiah Burroughs, it's the same question. Who is he? And what was going on in his life? What's the background, the context of this book, um, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment? Now, honestly, that title itself speaks to us. And uh, contentment is something that is a rare jewel these days, isn't it? And, and so I, what, what qualifies him? to speak on this. Of course, the main thing is scripture, but I would like to give you a little background uh, to appreciate who this is. We would call Jeremiah Burroughs a, a um, Puritan. So he comes from that period in the 1600s in particular. Sometimes we use, we talk about later writers, even as late as maybe uh, J.C. Ryle is kind of a Puritan out of uh, time kind of thing, or, or others who might say, oh, that person's a modern day Puritan. But the Puritans were in a time where England was going through some challenges. If you know something about uh, English church history, you see there was back and forth. You know, they uh, King Henry VIII split with the Roman Catholic Church because they wouldn't let him divorce his wife. 
So he established the Church of England. But it was very much like the Catholic Church in its doctrine. Then when the Reformation came, 1500s, Reformation truth started coming in and even Calvinistic influences. And so there was some back and forth. And one of the struggles is how biblical versus how Catholic will the church be? And, and so the Puritans wanted to purify out the traditions of man, especially coming out of the Catholic church that aren't in the Bible. And so they much, very much want to say, we want to worship in a Bible fashion. So in a nutshell, that's how the Puritans came to be. Jeremiah Burroughs um, comes from that context. Uh, I'm, I, have, I have three points for tonight's message uh, that kind of traces lifetime. And the one word for each, a geographic marker, England, Holland, England. Now, you could, you could, you could reproduce that outline. He starts, he's born, and I want to talk about his, his birth and life, early life and early ministry in England. What led him to go to Holland and his return? And he finished off his life in, um, in England. When I say he finished off his life, the Lord, I guess, could say finished off his life he was, uh, I think, 47 years old uh, when he died. So let's, let's talk about him. He was born to a family of apparently some pretty decent financial means. Now, how do we know that? We know very little. You know, uh, we'd say 1599 was the year of birth. I can't get too much more specific. There's a lot that's unclear. We, I think there's a baptismal date that we know because, you know, they baptized infants and you can approximate. How do we know he was a family of means? Uh, his father um, had a position in the city, but more significantly, he went to Cambridge University, Emmanuel College, and he was a pensioner, or he paid his own way. Where some people, where people maybe who didn't have the financial means, they would go and they would work. You know, they might work in the kitchen, they might serve some of the other students. So, so he was independently financially well off enough that they paid his his way through. Cambridge, and that tells us something about his finances. We know from uh, other reports that his father was a godly man. He was an elder in the church, and um, he eventually persuaded Jeremiah's younger brother to move to New England to uh, escape religious persecution. And so instantly I need to step back and remind you of some dates, even though we should have done this in November. The Puritan, the, the Puritan pilgrims that came to England, the date we put on that is 1620. Okay, so again, they fled religious persecution and came to America so that they might have the freedom to worship according to the Bible. 1620. So Jeremiah is born 1599. So you can see he's right in that context. And one of the things that's, that just amazed me, when I look at certain periods of history, I'm always I'm amazed to see sometimes it just seems like there's this upsurge of really significant individuals, uh, people of, of genius, people of, of strength, people of character. I, I look at that in this, the founding of our nation. You look at the 1776 period and some of the giants of the time, they were just remarkable. Not all of them believers, but just remarkable men and women. And the same is true of this period in many ways. And I want to I want to try and develop that with you. So he was born well-to-do, 
a well-off enough family. He went to grammar school after, you know, normally you learn reading and writing and that sort of thing at home. And in grammar school, he, you know, was very much like our time. He, he mastered the classics in Latin. And eventually he got to the place where he was expected to and did, you know, uh, translate uh, English poetry into to Latin. I mean, our kids do that. <laughs> uh, it, it, before grammar school was over, he would be expected to have con converse with his fellow students in Latin. You know, so class might go be done in Latin. Was this before Google Translate? Um, <laughs> no, Google Translate was, was that was, each, they had their iPhones and they used Google Translate. <laughs> he also would have studied Greek uh, so that he could, you know, read again the, the Greek philosophers, Greek, you know, uh, historians, possibly Hebrew, uh, logic, math, and the basics like that. That's like, as I reminded you, that, that's that's grammar school. <laughs> I won't start a sermon in that direction. We'll just leave that up there. But this, so the, this, this, this is the training they received in 1617. So he's about 18 years old, which is kind of old to be going off to university at that time. Often you were younger teens. Uh, he went to university. Uh, he went to the Emmanuel College at Cambridge University. So, you know, it's called a university because there were many different colleges. And he, he studied at the Emmanuel College, and that was like a Puritan training ground. I mean, that was a Puritan um, establishment, that, that college. We don't know how he came to faith or, or what, what it was that told the, how the Lord guided him to have a heart to go into ministry. Don't know. Just, you know, how what all that led to. But there, as a... You know, godly father, came to faith, went to university. Let me just tell you something from uh, the, the book, A Life, of, the, the, A Life of Gospel Peace, a biography of Jeremiah Burroughs, is uh, what I was mentioning. It's by uh, Philip Simpson. A lot of my information will come out of that text. He says this, as a student of the university, Burroughs was required to live at the college. Breakfast was served promptly at 8 a.m., lunch at 11 a.m., and dinner at 6 p.m. Studies were rigorous with breaks only after lunch and around dinner, which was the time for recreation. According to college's 28th statute, all other time should be spent in their calling. Prayers were held with students' tutor at 8 p.m. Tutor was kind of like a professor. This is one who, who was the one who was teaching, and they, a lot of times that was a small room uh, dis uh, learning situation. The college gates were shut at 10 p.m. and attendance at chapel was mandatory. So that was just something of their life. Very disciplined, very rigorous. Uh, prayer with your professor and um, reg regular chapel. So they didn't do seminary as in, in the way we do it today. I'll talk a little bit later about seminaries. But uh, One person who greatly influenced him was his uh, tutor. Um, and he was very influential in spiritual formation. And his name was Thomas Hooker. Thomas Hooker. And uh, what's interesting about Thomas Hooker to me is uh, he is credited with founding Connecticut. So, I mean, these were giants. They were giants in the lands back. So, so that kind of gives you, first of all, a sense of where Connecticut started. So this was a Puritan preacher, professor, and who mentored uh, Jeremiah Burroughs. He had some uh, friendships uh, people like uh, Thomas Goodwin, as well as William Bridges, 
Sidrek Simpson, and others. And uh, those, these other students that, I, that he was really close to, all of them were, um, they were the, became the famous Five Dissenting Brethren. So they were a part of what was called the Westminster Assembly. I, think, I almost think 1640, that's a, a date I put on that. And that was the Westminster Divines, these theologians that gathered together to, to hammer out the doctrinal statement and the catechisms and the concept of worship. Um, most of them were Presbyterian, but there were five independents, five Congregationalists, and Jeremiah Burroughs was one of them. So there were different kinds of Puritans. Presbyterian Puritans wanted to, they didn't want any of that Catholic influence. Um, there was a war in Scotland, the home of Puritans, uh, Presbyterians. There was a war in Scotland over that issue. The Scot Scottish Covenanters went to war rather than accept being required to read a, a, a prayer book that they felt had too much Catholicism in it. So the, the Presbyterians were a major influence of the Westminster Shorter uh, Westminster Assembly, but there were these Congregationalists. The theology was very much like the Puritans, but they believed in an independent church. So the, the Anglicans believed in the bishop and ultimately the king ruling the church. Presbyterians believed in a, in a presbytery, a body of Presbyterian leaders that governed the churches. The Congregationalists believed in an independent congregation. There was no higher authority. And so that's where he was. Um, one of the professors that he that influenced him was a, a preacher in the area was John Cotton. And that's a name, again, that might sound familiar to your New England history. But here's what would happen often. These local, local pastors would have seminary in their home. So the university students would, uh, would go and, and spend time really doing ministry training under this local pastor. And John Cotton was one of the greatly influential local ones. They, um, they called it a, a home seminary. And he's been called the patriarch of New England for his spiritual influence. So again, these were giants. I mean, he, he, he was directly influenced by some great godly and, 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 and incredibly significant men. John Cotton was a nonconformist. Um, now, when we think of that, we think of Berkeley, and we think of Haight-Ashbury. No, not, not so. Uh, he was a nonconformist in that he was a Congregationalist as well. He was suspended from ministry. So one of the problems is it was a state church. And if, and if you said, I'm not going along with some of these things, <clears throat> then they would take away your credentials to minister. And so when that happened, he uh, decided to move to New England, again, which is new, right? That's, they called it New England for a reason. He settled in uh, a Massachusetts town of, named uh, Tri Mountain. Have you ever visited Tri Mountain? The townspeople there, quote, out of respect to Mr. Cotton, who, who had come from Boston and Lincolnshire, England, where he'd ministered prior to leaving the country, uh, renamed the town of Tri Mountain Boston. So, I mean, you see, these are the kind of people that Jeremiah, that were mentoring, nurturing, uh, they, so they were theologians, they were godly men, and men of influence, you know, that rose to the top. 
get his, um, speaking of that, let me more about Thomas Hooker. Historians have bestowed several titles on him, um, such as the first American Democrat, meaning democratic person, believing in philosophy of democracy. <laughs> Founder of the Constitution of the United States and founder of Connecticut. I mean, again, just his influence, this Thomas Hooker, who was the, the tutor, who prayed with Jeremiah Burroughs every day, who nurtured him spiritually and intellectually when he was at Cambridge. Um, and by the way, he was also the first minister in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where, of course, Harvard University is now. So again, these guys were, were giants in history. Uh, he also founded the city of Hartford, Connecticut. And um, we could say so much more. So, so those were the influences. Let me talk about, the, so we, we've talked about his family a little bit, his education. And again, just, um, you know, his, 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 he was so nurtured by such... Uh, just, I don't know what else to call them. Powerful, spiritually dynamic, influential men. And then he went into ministry. Um, uh, his first, he was a curate, which is like an assistant pastor in 1625 at All Saints Church. Um, and every Sunday after he served there, then he would go ride his horse to Chelmsford and stay for a week and get seminary training some further. Um, and so he would... You know, minister on weekends and then go and get more nurturing and training in a church under a pastor. And then he was called to a church uh, in another town as a lecturer. Well, why would the church have a lecturer? Well, this was the one who, who preached the Bible messages. And the advantage of being a lecturer, if you're a nonconformist, you don't have to conform to all the rules. And I'll tell you a little bit of the sort of things that troubled them. But as, so um, with that, he could go and preach, even though he, was, he didn't agree with all of the, the, the Roman Catholic influences in the Church of England. Um, so with that, he went, he didn't have to go through all the rituals and ceremonies, uh, and, and he, but he could preach. While he was there, he wasn't too far away from uh, someone who was an official in a nearby <laughs> town named John Winthrop who later became the first governor of Massachusetts. He went and listened to Burroughs preach frequently, and his comment was he was the most godly and orthodox of the English independents. And the kind of people that were in, that touched his lives, the giants were in the lands those back, back in those days. Eventually, he accepted another position. Uh, this time, he actually became the rector, the pastor of the church. And that meant he had to deal with his conscience now. What about all these requirements? Um that were, were there. Um, some of the things that they called um, superstitions, that's uh, what the Puritans called them, he decided to kind of go along so he could minister in the church. Some of the things, like I don't know if you've ever seen sometimes, uh, especially in the Catholic Church, over the gown there's a, a white, frocky kind of thing, I don't know what to call it. They call it a surplice. That seems too priestly. So the, the Puritans didn't want to wear that. Other things like having to, uh, you know, bow your head when you say the name Jesus, um, having to read prayer, uh, pr prayers from a prayer book, um, 
you know, that's not saying they, that they thought it was wrong to read prayers, but that that's the only acceptable way to pray. And other things, the, the calendar, they didn't approve of all that. Well, around this time, King Charles, not the third, <laughs> King Charles number one, uh, looked around at his kingdom and he saw that, uh, and he's supposed to be the defender of the faith, and he saw the church wasn't doing so well, he decided to reissue um, a book that had come out before, the King Majesty's Declarations to His Subjects Concerning Lawful Sports. It was called the Book of Sports. The king wanted, in all the churches, this book read to the congregation, telling them what sports they should participate in on Sunday. What his excuse was, we need people who are, you know, you know, some of these athletic events will keep you healthy in case, you know, so we can have a good army ready if we ever need it. You know, think about the people we're talking about back then. They worked in mills, they were farmers, they worked in the mines. I don't think they needed more exercise. But the Puritans said the Sunday, the Lord's Day, is a day of rest. And so the king wanted these ministers to stand up in the church and say, these are the activities you should participate in on Sunday. Um, and, of course, the Puritans didn't like having to get up and read this thing. Eventually, in 1636, so in, what, 20... 31 was his first uh, actual pastor in 1636. Uh, Arch he was uh, uh, suspended from uh, ministry um, and from further ministerial duties. You know, the charges against him are as follows. You may want to use these against me at some point. <laughs> he refused to read the King's Book of Sports. Now, some people got, ar got around that. They said they would read the King's Book of Sports, and then they would say, Thus saith the King. And now thus saith the Lord, honor the Lord's day and keep it holy. <laughs> and so they say, well, I read your book. <laughs> well, he wouldn't. <clears throat> uh, and the charges included refusing the king's book, not bowing at the name of Jesus. This is a tough one. And praying extemporaneous prayers rather than written prayers. And so that's grounds for dismissal for ministry. And so um, there was a wealthy man who, and a noble who kind of had a heart for the Puritans and shared their convictions. And so he took in something like 22 of them into his estates and provided for their well-being and, and supported them. Well, Burroughs started praying to the Lord and saying, what am I going to do? Really anxious about this, you know, because the doors of ministry were closed and it was getting more and more dangerous. And he wrote, I was thus musing, thus troubled in my spirit, lifting my heart up to God to help me and, and set me at liberty. He knew the scripture said, cast all your cares upon him and he'll care for you. And so he said, uh, or as he was praying, Burroughs looked out of his window and he wrote, I spied a man in a citizen's habit coming in the courtyard towards my chamber. As he approached, I recognized him to be, recognized him to be a former citizen of Norwich, but at that time he was from the church of Rotterdam in Holland. So he was praying, Lord, guide me. What shall I do? What shall I do? Lifted his head, and here comes a Dutch man walking with a letter of invitation to minister in their church. So he did. Went to Holland in 1638. Um, became a co-pastor of a church there, but even in doing that, there had been some controversies and conflict. Can you imagine that in a church? Um, not long after the... Uh, 
controversy erupted. The congregation voted to um, kick out the pastor there. Again, here's some things you might want to consider when you consider me. The reason for his ejection was not only that he sided with someone else in a controversy, he had taken up to recycling old sermons that he had preached in previous churches. That's pretty bad. <laughs> in our day, uh, they have a hard, we have a hard time getting upset about what someone just... I joke about this sometimes. What do you do Saturday? I go online looking for a sermon I can preach on Sunday. But there are actually people that do that, that actually take and preach sermons and, um, and claim it as their own. In those days, you could have written the sermon, but they, you can't use it twice. I remember talking to, you know, hearing that you know, some, some pastors, some preachers that are out there, they have about a dozen good sermons. And they go from church to church and preach a dozen good sermons. I remember Dr. Pentecost at the seminary, when he was young in ministry, one of the older guys took him aside and said, Now, what you need, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to work very hard for these next three years. This is your first church. Work really hard. You write up some really good, well prepared sermons. After three years, you leave this church, you go to the next church, and you've got it made. The sermons are done. And Dr. Pentecost didn't go along with that. But all that to say, can you imagine, they, 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 they kicked him out of the church because he was preaching repeats of sermons that he prepared before. Um, so for a while, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs considered going to New England, as so many of his colleagues and friends had done. Apparently he may have even sent some of his books ahead, which shows you how serious he was. But he just couldn't get any peace of heart about the matter. And so uh, think the, the rules, things changed. Uh, there was the uh, a jubilee was declared. I won't go through all the politics, you know, of what was going on in, between the parliament and the king at this time in England. But they basically gave a pardon to all the ejected ministers. And so he returned in 1642. And he settled in London. There he preached to the two largest churches in England, right there in London, and then eventually a third church. All three churches at the same time. So he would go from one church to the next church to the next church. And you know, you can't recycle sermons. So he'd preach on the same day a different sermon for each of those three churches. And apparently uh, suited to that church. You know, so as he was, what were the needs of this church? He would prepare an in-depth sermon, and, and, and you'll get this, as, you know, if you don't think they were in-depth sermons, the book we'll be reading are his sermons, and you'll see that um, Drake's been cutting it short on us. You know, this, this is what a sermon is supposed to look like. Um, and so he would do three of these. Uh, then he was asked to be a part of the Westminster um, Assembly. And they were working, you know, they were hammering out what uh, you know? What should the, the doctrines of the Church of England be? Uh, what what are what should be our confession? What be our catechisms? And they really hammered out some over. But it was years of work. They, they asked the the divines to be there five days a week. So he worked five days a week among the assemblies, wrestling with deep theology, and you know, working through things, presenting papers and such. He come back to London. And have to prepare and preach three sermons on Sunday. 
Monday, back to the assembly. This went on for a while. Um, by the way, on Sundays, he was preaching to over 3,000 people on a Sunday between those three churches, and that's significant back then. So literally, he was preaching to, like I said, the two largest churches in England and this third church. And yet, we've never heard of this guy. And he was, he was a, a, among giants and, and considered one of the greats. Give you just a sense of it. Um, in one of the churches, he preached uh, on the Beatitudes. Now, some pastors would take, that's one sermon. Uh, you know, I would probably take a little longer than that. Uh, he, he spent 41 weeks on the 15 verses of the Beatitudes. Um, interestingly, he was premillennial. He caught some flack for that. He believed that Christ would return and establish and, and rule over a kingdom on earth. Um, as I said, he in, in 42 he returned. In August of 1642, again, 1642, um, this is the first civil war in England. This is when the parliament rises up, you know, and there's battles between the parliament and the kings, and the parliament was uh, much influenced by the Puritan trend. Eventually, the king was executed, and the Puritan Oliver Cromwell wrote, you know, became the leader of the nation for a while. And so that was in 1642. And um, that just kind of gives you, it was a time of upheaval. In 1646, and during the ministry of all this time and busyness, he was on horseback. October 30th, he was thrown by a horse, uh, landed on his back, eventually apparently developed some kind of an infection. And on November the 13th, he died. I believe his last words, but as he was dying, were these. He, it's, here's a description. He lifted up his eyes and was heard to speak these words. I come, I come, I come. And so he gave up the ghost. Um, commenting on his flight from England and time in Holland, here's a statement. Does God fail to reward faithfulness? Or is it possible that following Christ means in some cases that matters actually get worse? Paul's words from 2 Timothy 3.12 seem to ring true. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Though such reflection was probably inevitable, Burroughs exhibited only contentment during this time. He later wrote one of the best-known books on the subject entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. This book was no theoretical discourse. The topic was not speculated upon in a vacuum detached from his personal experience. Burroughs was a living sermon. He simply preached on what he himself had lived and learned. His views on contentment have become well known. His definition of Christian contentment is this. That sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's a Puritan definition. Um, I wonder if we were to write out a definition of contentment, it would probably be no more than four words. Some of you bright ones might come up with a six-word definition. But let me just read this again. And, this is, and every word is important. And wives, you be praying for your husbands as they go and take this uh, study, this book together, that they'll be sweet. 
<laughs> that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So it's not a stiff upper lip. It's not this kind of, a, I'm resenting, but I'm not going to complain. But there is a, a sweetness. There is a joy. There is a, a glad surrender to a sovereign God. And fundamental to that is God's in control. That's key to, to contentment. If we think you know, we're living in a world that's just out, you know, where the atoms are flying wherever they will and this, this, you know, this world runs itself, it's hard to be content. Then you, you know, then it's just stoicism. Well, that's the way it is. You know, and so there's that great Bible verse that we often quote. It is what it is. <laughs> uh, we, we should probably say that it is what he says it is. Uh, but no, it's, that, so, so that was a heart. And, and, and so these, um, how many sermons did he preach? I can't remember now. There's a good clue. This is a Puritan book, several pages of table of contents. Um, several sermons built on a few verses from the book of Philippians. And here's the text, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now, some would suggest that proves Paul never made it to New Jersey, but... Um, <laughs> I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that passage is what he, what he will unfold in our book together. What's interesting, so just the last couple thoughts on Jeremiah Burroughs. He was a man of, in, in, in very significant times in England and America. And he knew the major players and was nurtured and taught, discipled and mentored by giants. And they looked at him and said, this is one of the giants. He didn't live very long. He made it to 47 years. Um, he lived in a time of, of upheaval. He lived in a time of war in his own land, civil war. The, and, and, and he lived during the time of the, of the Covenanters, Scottish Covenanters, and their war against the king. He lived through church conflict. And I didn't go into all the details, but he got kind of wrapped up in that uh, issue over that pastor that was relieved. He had to flee everything more than once. And then worked his, worked his tail off. You know, think of that schedule. Five weeks. You know, we often complain about meetings. Five weeks, five days a week of meetings. Then a weekend, three fresh sermons from three different churches. And the one church where he preached this message, the series on contentment, was actually one of the wealthier churches. Because if you have been much aware of, well, sometimes we get the idea, well, the wealthy have no problems, no needs. Uh, you know, the old thing is, well, if, you, if, if, money, if you don't think money makes you happy, then you're just shopping at the wrong stores. I, I challenge you to find a store that sells contentment. 
And often that's the problem, because the more you have, the more you realize this, this isn't doing anything for me. But he preached this series on contentment in, in, a, in a time of conflict nationally, in a time of theological and ecclesiastic conflict. He'd been through much personal suffering. And his key was you focus on the Lord. So I'm looking forward to this. I think we'll be challenged. I think this uh, condensed version will make his, his, his insights uh, even more insightful. So uh, men, um, I look forward to it. Women, uh, if, as long as you don't see where your husband's underlined, you, you can read the book <laughs> and, and enjoy and, and treasure what's before us. <clears throat> so with that, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table. <clears throat> Our Lord, we thank you for how you raise up. When I've been speaking of these giants, these are men and women that you have raised up. Thank you, Father, for bringing them to faith. Thank you, Father, for transforming their lives. Thank you for empowering them by your Holy Spirit and filling them with your word. Father, here in America, I thank you for these who many godly ones, great ones, mature, and thoughtful ones, who were so influential in the, in, the, in the foundations of this land. Thank you, Father, for them. Thank you for those that were also being greatly used of you in, in England, in Scotland, in Holland, um, and in Switzerland. Father, in so many areas, we thank you for the abounding grace you have shown. Again, Lord, I just have to say, please do it again. We need the light in our darkness. But Father, in the difficult times and challenging times of which we live, I pray that the lessons from, from Paul, uh, from Jeremiah Burroughs, will be used of you in, in our lives that we might be used for your glory. And now as we come to this table, we ask your blessing in Jesus' name.